listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. Sometimes uh, producers will talk about movie music, and I'm not sure that such a thing exists called movie music. For example, you could have the simplicity of a plastic bottle being hit with a stick that works incredibly well for a movie scene versus a full-on orchestra playing something grand and powerful but doesn't work. What's your take on that? There is definitely an expectation of um, production values. <laughs> and music can play a big part in that. So if you've got really beautiful pictures and you put a big orchestra with it, and we all know what that Hollywood sound is, that's a very you know well-known phenomenon, the Hollywood sound, then you feel like you're watching something really well-made, really well-done. It elevates in your subconscious, I guess, this, 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 what you're seeing. And you may be more likely to believe it, or certainly you're more likely to accept that it's quality, that it's good. And equally, if you, you know, if, if you work um, in a kind of a low budget sphere, you know, and you're working with sounds that are not top notch, then the audience hears that and they go, oh, this is a little bit average. And so I think the really interesting stuff happens somewhere in between. So if you're a Hollywood film, but you're trying to do something interesting, you're trying not to be necessarily too obvious, then a composer can bring something very different by being bold. There's plenty of examples of, of that in, in, the, in the modern era. You know, Thomas Newman really did that with American Beauty. He, he changed the game. That score, it was a strange and beautiful score, and it was quite almost agnostic, but it sort of profoundly affected you. you know? so, so it wasn't a typical score in the way that you felt anything. It, it allowed you to really interpret that world. And it was using marimbas and small-sounding instruments, and it was... It was it had rough edges, um, and I think it's it really spawned a whole kind of different way of, of of approaching a film. And of course, most composers are really interested in trying to find something unique. So, if you're working with an orchestra, then you know how can you use that to to be unique, to be to be different. But no doubt, if there's an expectation that you are in this genre, that you're in this you know, you're working on a big budget film, there needs to be an orchestra. Usually those decisions are kind of made by the producers or the directors, you know, so there's some concept that you kind of, that you start with. But you might discuss it and you might sell them on something different, you know, the opposite. You might say, why don't we do this with, you know, as you say, with some sticks and a drum, let's, let's make this a banjo score or um, I'm going to do a whistling ukulele thing in this. Uh, those kinds of ideas will help the film to, to stick out. <laughs> And that might be a good thing. And often I think you know, the best stuff comes from that bit of invention. Yeah, I do, I do think that you, you're, you're always balancing the need of the film and the need of the producer and the, you know, the producers of the film to make this film feel cinematic. Getting back to your initial question, I think there is an expectation that something is cinematic, then it's probably orchestral. It's probably, you know, it's going to sound lush, it's going to sound big. If you deviate from that, then you, you run the risk, I suppose, of making the film not feel that, and the producers might really want it to be. But at the same time, you perhaps might find something more interesting, and it may give the film a quality that's quite unique and that helps it to stand out from the rest. So, yeah, it's a balancing act. And live strings are quite interesting because obviously in indie films, you don't always have the budget to do some live streams. I just wanted to elevate the scene more 
and thought, gee, if we had live violin strings here, this would actually make a big difference in the scene. And then we were fortunate enough to be able to do that. And obviously, I thought that it would make a difference. But when it came in, it made a tremendous difference. It just felt so much more organic and everything was just driving the scene. It's always a bit frustrating, I suspect, for a composer wanting to have live strings, but having to use sample music instead. That's very true. We, you know, these days we've, we've got incredibly good at making fake things sound real. And the technology is, is extraordinary, really, even, even in the last sort of 10 years. The level of the, the sample libraries, these virtual instruments, um, has gone up massive gears and you know we we're, we effectively are now working with real orchestra that's been recorded and sampled and then the composer is able to change those notes and and make that his or her own but at the same time there is a limit to how real that is and certain things can be totally convincing but other things you know runs subtle dynamics um, expression those things are just harder to recreate. And probably in time, even those things will be, you know, figured out because it's it's all technologically doable. I'm absolutely, though, a believer that if you create something and then you allow someone else to interpret that, and we all know how music, how dynamic music is and how, how much one person's performance is going to change to the next and, and so on. As soon as you bring humans in, you inject humanity, which is one of those things that you desperately want in a score. So really with MIDI and with virtual instruments, we're trying to to fake that humanity, but you, you can't always do that. Um, and you can get away with it in certain places. If you're working in a big action scene, you know, sometimes there's so much to compete with in terms of sound effects that you probably don't, it probably doesn't matter. And a lot of the time, even the big, Big Hollywood guys are, are using MIDI stuff sitting in the background or reinforcing. But when you've got perhaps something much more exposed where the music's front and center, it's a very intimate drama or a dramatic moment in, in a film or maybe even, you know, a big connecting moment. Yeah, that's where uh, if you've got real players, you really do notice there's something beautiful about the imperfections of, of, of a human ensemble. You know, you can, you can mock that up really well and you can make it better by adding even just one live string player there's no doubt that can make a big difference because all of a sudden you've got a real human moving those things up and down that you know expressing and being being dynamic and interpreting but you know there's probably still no substitute really for the real thing and there's times when as a composer you just know it will be so much better if you can put a real player on it and you know there's there's always budget constraints and sometimes you you have to sort of show the difference before people will believe it um, and I mean you, you know yourself how much of a difference it can make so um, when there's an opportunity to record then we always record you know that's that's something every every composer appreciates part of the the difference is that the sample is really perfect and the live strings in this case is not perfect. It's not absolutely perfect. You can hear little imperfections, and that is probably operating on a subconscious basis, I suspect. Very true, yeah. Even the best libraries, and they're trying to build in imperfection now, um, doing it quite well. The problem is that 
imperfection is infinite. <laughs> um, yeah. It'll never be the same. Uh, whereas a sample will be the same. So even an imperfect sample is going to come up again and again. And if an audience or a composer sort of hears that, um, they become attuned to it and uh, it starts to sound it starts to sound fake or they perhaps don't believe it. So, yeah, there's, there's simply no, I guess there's no real substitute for that genuine imperfection. And you're right, that's, that's, I think, what it is. And I think that's probably what I mean when I say humanity. You know, we're not machines and we never do something exactly the same way twice. And it's incredible how much better something imperfect can sound, even if it's a little bit flat or the, the coming off of the note is a little bit scratchy. There is something that triggers it in your subconscious. And you're right. I think, I think the audience subconsciously kind of know whether it's real or not by those subtle things. I remember when we were working with MIDI guitars in the early days, they were just so perfect. And you didn't believe it. And then I remember getting this first sample library which, which added fret noise. And suddenly you had this, this strange little squeak that you get on a fret, on a guitar fretboard <laughs> that, that happens every time a guitarist plays. And suddenly it just made such a difference. And it's, and it's an imperfection. It's a, you know, but it's a characteristic of the instrument, which we all know. We've all heard instruments since we were you know, babies. Um, we know those sounds and we must be appreciating deeply you know, on a subconscious level that that's real, that's a player. And I guess from the very beginning of, you know, cinema, music's always been a big part of it. So I always kind of laugh when I hear parents say, oh, my kids don't listen to classical music. And I say, well, actually, they listen to it all the time. They're listening to orchestral music. They're listening to, you know, basically Stravinsky and Shostakovich and um, Dvorak and Zabelius, because all of those guys massively influenced John Williams and Tom Newman and Danny Elfman and Hans Zimmer. And... There's no doubt, you know, the whole the whole of cinema owes a lot to those. So we we are, you know, I guess kind of almost we're almost educated from birth on those on those works, but but it's very subconscious. It's baked in, Tom, from birth. <laughs> <laughs> baked in from birth, Craig. I think you're right. You know, we we uh, probably have no idea how much we expect or understand music and story because. You know, we've, from the beginning of watching television, um, you know, to, to, to movies, we, we understand, you know, we, we, we've associated music with those stories. So, you know, there's, there's so much going on there that we probably don't really fully appreciate. <laughs> um, again, a, a good PhD student, I'm sure, could, could mine that field. And the cinema, it's a composer's friend, obviously, especially when doing a final mix. And not all films have the option to go to a full-sized theatre with final mix. But talking from experience, and Tom, you were my music composer when we did a final mix. And we did that in the same sound mixing studio as Lord of the Rings. The difference is night and day to anything you can replicate elsewhere how important is that to you for your final mix? That's huge. I think for any composer, you really want to have, you know, the best ears over over the work. And, you, and they, they may not be your own because you sometimes perhaps can't make those decisions um, about the final reverbs and the final size of the hall and, you know, the, the, kinds of, the kinds of fine detail that I think a good engineer brings. So at the same time, if you're in a facility, if you're in a big space like a park row where they, 
you know, they have these full-size cinemas, uh, you, you really know what you're going to be hearing in the cinema. So that's, that's huge. Of course, you know, really experienced people who are working in smaller spaces are, are also you know, doing amazing work and able to, um, to recreate that same experience. You know, I, I find personally, I, I love to have really, really good people in that last, that last stage. Yeah, just partly because, you know, as a composer these days, you are kind of required to be an engineer as well. And a lot of composers record themselves and, you know, I do my own recordings if I'm working with a guitarist or something. But, you know, a lot of the time, of course, you won't. You'll go into a bigger studio. But on a smaller budget thing, you're doing so much of the work yourself and you're often doing mixing and editing yourself. But I'm not an engineer and I've always said that. So I really love having specialized people sort of take that last step with me and you know I, I feel much more confident about it and I think that that goes for the whole the whole mix the subtleties of a big mix are immense you know I, I sit there and just to take my hat off to the re-recording mixer because they're just dealing with so many layers of sound to try and focus the ear of the listener that's incredible you know yeah, I remember seeing um, great, some great Hollywood documentaries about those amazing people. You, you have to balance all of the subliminal stuff of the world, make sure that what's being understood is coming through all the dialogue, and then the music obviously is that emotional thing. If you're in the middle of an action sequence, sometimes the music will just have to take a back seat to all of the real action that's happening, and then there's other moments where actually, no, what has to happen is the emotion is the most important thing right now, and all that stuff fades into the background, and the music comes into the foreground. There's so many elements, and yeah, there's no doubt you need a, you know, you need to be working with really good people in a in a great facility. Park Road Post obviously is amazing. We've we've had uh, some some wonderful experiences there, and uh, I've worked in a couple of other places as well, in different places around the world. But yeah, we're very lucky to have Park Road Post here in Wellington. So sticking with our experience of working together at Park Road Post, one of the music cues that you had in the film was quite long with the action of a boat sinking and all of the mayhem and panic uh, to get the get off the boat before it hit the rocks and sank. Very much a long cue. Can't all be sustained with driving a driving thunderous cue. And I thought it was such a clever way to pick the moments when you went big and when you decided to, to pull it back. Yeah, that sequence was one of the longer ones. I think it was about six and a half minutes or something. It was, yeah, it's, it is a long time. And you're right, you have to, really, you have to break it up. I think I remember there being sort of three components, sort of almost three separate uh, musical ideas and they were tempo-related as well. There were, you know, moments where where it's just pure action, like it's just pure danger. And then there's moments where you just genuinely feel incredible fear, and it's focused on one person. So you you are moving between this epic and this intimate, and in the midst of massive noise. You know that that scene you're talking about, we had the mass, the huge white noise of the sea, the ocean was just constant. So to to kind of to reach um, people in those moments, you you're relying on a lot of cut through. You're trying to you're trying to make make things cut through, and there's also a lot of percussive elements coming from the boat, the ship, the crashing, the creaking, you know, things falling over, which all creates rhythm. So at the same time, if you've got rhythms, then they might compete against those sounds. So yeah, it, it is quite challenging trying to find the space for the music in there. You have to keep coming back to that emotion. So 
the music's doing two things. It is, um, it is driving, so it's absolutely telling us adrenaline, adrenaline, the stakes are high. And then at the same time, it's also telling us that all could be lost and that the, that the characters, you know, are, um, are feeling this burden, and particularly Richard, who's the, the lead, and his, his responsibility almost kind of comes to this epic point here where he's prepared to make sure everyone's off this boat before him, including the captain, um, and very nearly pays, pays the, the ultimate price. So we, we have to kind of get inside his head at various moments and, and you need to change the music up and down to kind of find, find that. But you're always working with the pictures anyway. So you're right, you can't sustain something for too long. You, you do need to have, I think, components when you're looking at a big, a long sequence like that. And we also had a couple of colorways, I think, to Judy, Richard's, Richard's partner, who was listening on a radio and wasn't in the scene. So that helps as well. That helps you phrase the drama. But I, I, I do remember putting in, you know, significant sort of change moments where usually it's where the action ramps up and you ultimately you're building from zero to the end of that six and a half minute sequence. So in this case, that final piece of music was huge. You know, it was, it was a big orchestral thing. And I remember the final piece, the final phrase of the music is literally expanding out in both directions. It was kind of spiraling upwards and the strings were spiraling downwards. Um, at the same time to just create this this kind of climax, which leaves us hanging because we don't actually know if Richard survived. Yeah, it's a, it's, um, it, was, it was a fun, it was a really fun sequence to work on. And for those of you that are interested, we will leave in the show notes a link so that you can watch the scene that we've just been describing. I'll always be a cinema goer. The viewing experience in the cinema, when the lights go off, people stop talking, turn off their phones, immerse themselves into the film. At home, quite often the reverse happens. When the film starts 30 seconds later, somebody's cell phone goes off. Two minutes later, someone gets up and brings back some potato chips. Uh, it's a completely different experience. And I wonder if we have taken the cinema for granted for all these years until COVID-19 turned up and that changed everything. In different parts of the world, they won't be able to go to the cinema for quite some time. Yeah, yeah, you're right for sure. I mean, we've we've said um, I think uh, I've been through a couple of eras now where cinema was predicted to die, uh, VHS, uh, DVDs, then streaming, <laughs> um, and quite the opposite seems to have happened. Cinema, I guess, has something special, has something different to offer. There's no doubt, like I guess, from the beginning of time, you know, humans gathered together to whether it's in the town square or around the campfire to have important discussions and and idea and to share ideas so when we see a movie that's probably continuing the the same narrative really it's it's collectively you know you know thinking about another world or another another person's life so i think we do gain something by being together when we do it and i even at home i don't want to watch by myself i'd much rather watch with my my darling partner or my kids or you know I, there's no doubt you you have uh, a different experience when you watch with others. So, you know, I, I would, I would, I would predict that cinema will always be with us in one form or another, and that even in a virtual reality environment of the future, which is which is coming for sure, we'll, we'll still want to feel we're connected. And <laughs> you know, the irony is that it'll probably be virtual reality that connects us. We'll probably go to a, the movies together in our own virtual 
screens. But we'll be sitting there and we'll look beside us and there's someone from Taipei and there's someone from, from you know, Shanghai and there's, <laughs> there's someone from London sitting in a virtual seat next to us. I don't know. But I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bet that we'll, we'll lose that, that charm of, of the cinema. And, you know, really interesting, my, my, for instance, my parents, um, they go to the cinema more than ever and they have community when they go there. They go to the lighthouse here in Petone and they enjoy the cafe and the whole experience. But yeah, um, I guess in the same way, there's no doubt we're all going to be looking at screens at home a lot more in the coming months or years. And there are a lot of distractions at home. It is hard to sort of turn off and, and to fully immerse. And I think we all really notice that. But you might, you might also argue that with streaming, we are now able to watch television in a way we never have before. TV was always broken into ads and, and the commercial break was really affecting the structure. And now drama plays out in its purest form when you watch whether it's a 40 minute or a one hour you're watching the same as you would in a feature um in some cases it's you know it's continued straight on to the next episode anyway so you really have long form entertainment now and you can immerse yourself in a different way thanks to i guess the the, the advent of streaming so we now i think have a different experience we're seeing this massive resurgence in television really that's where the big dramas are being made and there's a a very rich vein to tap into there, I think, um, dramatically. We're, 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 still see we're still seeing the impact of that, I think, in the way we tell stories. And over the coming years, we'll, we'll start to see that. We're, we're getting, obviously, short short bites and, and webisodes and things like that, which are 10-minute things. And I tend to go for the longer stuff, so um, I'll be watching a, you know, a series, but I can, I can binge watch. I can watch when I want, and I can watch undistracted. And, and I'm not interrupted by ads. So <laughs> that's pretty fundamental and it will change how we how we tell these stories there's no doubt we're still figuring that out you are so right about the advertising all of my life i have put up with uh, television advertising free to wear is something now to me it's just like a dinosaur i do not watch any free to wear the only thing that i watch on my computer will be the six o'clock news just to find out what's going on but Yes, it's far more immersive, for example. Uh, it just does pull you in. You know, this expression of a movie kicking you out, well, that was happening every five minutes on free-to-air with advertising. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. You, you used to see with, with TV, you still do really, the, the first ad break will be 20 minutes or so in. You know, they'll, they'll, have, a, they'll have a long a long lead-in because they obviously need to need to keep you <laughs> and pull you in. And then as you get nearer the end of the movie, they become more and more frequent and it just it does get annoying. Yeah, I'm like you. I watch the news. I actually watch it. I tape it every night and I watch it delayed uh, on my own recorder and I just forward the ads. Um, and that's kind of old school in a way, but it, it works for me. And the rest of my viewing is all very much on demand. But but I will watch free-to-air on demand as well. I watch TVNZ or TV3 on demand. Yeah, there's some really great, um, online platforms that you know we're, we're lucky to have now I think that that ability to I think I think we all are a bit impatient with ads you know and if I get more than two ads on an on-demand I'll get annoyed <laughs> yeah. yes demand that's that's the beautiful thing about demand is that you can just fast forward when I say I watch the news at six o'clock I'm doing exactly the same I'm watching it delayed so I can fast forward so an hour of news I can watch normally in about 12 or 13 minutes and uh, <laughs> I'm done yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I guess we're we're, we're um, becoming sort of omnipotent, aren't we? We just we expect to have pure control over these things. We're not going to tolerate um, that inflexibility. 
But, you know, on the other hand, um, we end up paying for more services. I've, I got duped into uh, accumulating, I've now got, I think, four subscriptions, <laughs> which happens during the lockdown. And, um, you know, I haven't unsubscribed because I'm enjoying them all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it gets expensive. And when you watch a film now, Tom, can you block out the music or the minute the music enters a scene, suddenly you don't hear the dialogue? <laughs> well, you know, I'm probably not the best person to ask because I'm very aware of music and um, that's just a professional thing, I suppose. If, I, if I'm aware of it, I will be asking myself the question, is it because, you know, I'm interested in the music <laughs> or is it because the, the music's too loud or hasn't come in the right way? For the most part, I think I'm like any audience member and I don't really want to notice those things. But naturally, as, as you, I'm sure, will will test, you know, you, you, you sort of see the, you can kind of feel what's going on under the hood. You see the mechanics. So, but as an audience member, I still try not to. I still try to be completely absorbed. And then I'll just have little moments where I'll go, gee, that was incredible. What a beautiful piece of music or what an amazing bit of editing or, you know, or acting or whatever. You know, I think anyone, anyone does. We all started out because we love movies and we love any, any cinema, any cinematic drama, TV or film. Um, yeah, I've, I've always been completely besotted with it. So I don't want that to change just because I know <laughs> how the music's affecting me. I, um, I would rather be immune to it, I suppose. Well, no, I would rather it wash over me and I, and I don't pick it up. But I think anyone who works in, in that industry is going to have moments where they're aware of something. They're aware of the mechanics. And, yeah, sometimes you go, oh, I can feel that manipulating me. I don't like that. But that's maybe okay for most people that just might i might be a bit more sensitive to it and do you find working with directors that some get a music cue more clearly with picture and dialogue versus some directors who can listen to just the cue and say yes or no yeah i never leave off the dialogue the dialogue and effects that i've been given that's a really really interesting point i i think you always want to give them as close to what they're going to ultimately see as you can so uh, just just so you know you know or listeners know like if you're working with a, a rough cut or it's probably a locked cut most of the time that you're working with as a composer sometimes you'll have a pretty rough dialogue track um which will have some effects on it yeah, but off, often i'll try and engage the the sound mixer the sound editor and get get some early draft design and also I'll get a cleaned up dialogue track and they'll give those to me separately. And that's really useful. So then I can at least have a pretty good idea of what I'm working with in terms of the sound design. Because that, you know, sometimes will compete with music and you've got to be aware of any tone and stuff that might be coming through um, or texture, you know, that you might be working with or, or against. So it's very, very useful. But um, And then whenever I give it to a director, whenever I'm getting that first bit of feedback, um, I always include the dialogue and effects in there. And I'll give them just a quick, quick bounce down of the scene. And I also try and keep the music close to the level that it would be. I won't elevate it because I think if you elevate it, you might then question, oh, was it just a bit too loud? If the director didn't, didn't like it or wasn't moved by it, probably better to be slightly under than slightly over. So, you know, that, that's a technical thing. I then would be obviously happy to sort of show them the piece of music for sure by itself, you know, play the scene if that's what a director wanted. But generally, I'm not asked for that. They're always happy to have a scene play out with the dialogue and sometimes with temp effects or, um, you know, bash, what we call bash, bash effects. 
and know that the music's sitting there and roughly the place that it will be, even if it's not quite nuanced to the levels that it will ultimately be. And have you found the opening of a score at the start of a film often could be the most important of the overall piece of the, the score itself? Yeah, I do think that this goes back to, I guess, the old-fashioned notion of the, of the overture. And operas have had this forever. Certainly uh, early music, early, early, early cinema, um, would, you know, Casablanca and all the, the great movies, they, they had a, an overture at the start, which would actually summarise all the themes in the movie and set up the expectation, the style, the, you know, some, some sense of the world that we're about to see. Um, these days, it's not like that. It's more subtle. But there, I think there is still a notion of that overture, that moment of, I suppose, I suppose it's kind of a, an immersion moment for the audience to be to allow themselves to go into this film and into this world you are right in that it's 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 pretty important <laughs> i think if the music's wrong or misleading the audience might they might lose interest or they might be they might have really no idea what this film's about i think they need to sense what the kind of movie they're seeing is and at the same time probably you know depending on the genre they want to be intrigued they want to be um, they want to have their interest peaked kind of emotionally as well and uh, we've all had that thing and a friend of mine calls this the popcorn moment where you'll sit there and you'll suddenly reach for the popcorn because you go oh this is going to be good <laughs> sometimes it's in that opening sequence i think that you feel that you know you have to the composer's job i guess is to to help the audience feel uh, a connection is, is that's the first connection that you make with the journey you're about to go on so it's pretty important Tom, thank you so much for your insights into composing. It is such a valuable aspect, very much underrated, I feel, from producers to directors and everybody in between. But I think that that has been a really valuable uh, contribution that you've made uh, for Shoot It Now today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Craig. I, I, I feel very grateful to be doing this work. So it's, um, it's, it's nice to share some, <laughs> some thoughts about it. It's, an, it's a never-ending journey of learning, for sure. That's, uh, I'm sure, how all of us feel in film. But um, I think in anything you learn, you never stop learning, do you? So we'll, uh, we'll continue on the, on the journey. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.